Now let's move up here in the Gene Pitney story to, to Britain, uh, to Keith Richards, to Mick Jagger. You did, did a show called uh, Thank Your Lucky Stars, I think. Was that the name of the show? Yeah, it was a piggy, sure. And uh, uh, on that, you got to know them. They were really um, not out in the forefront then. You must have helped them along. I know they, they helped pen one of your songs, didn't they? Well, Thank You, Lucky Stars was like the television show of its day, and it just happened to be that we were doing the show at the same time. But the, the real reason that we got to know each other was that my publicist, Andrew Lou Goldham, was their manager at the time. And he said to me one night, you gotta come out and see this group I've got. He said, I don't know what it is about them, but he said, they're tearing up audiences. This was prior to having any records or anything. Right. And uh, I went out to see him, and I'd never ever seen guys with long hair before. <laughs> And it was much longer then than actually when they came on the scene. It was way down over the shoulder length. And I had a guy traveling with me. He was a friend of mine from home. And he had his picture taken with the four of them, with two on each side with right. their arms around him. And it actually happened when he got home. His wife took a look at it and said, who are those four ugly broads that you, uh, she'd never seen anything like that before. <laughs> but we got to hang out a lot and got to know each other very, very well. And uh, that was when Brian Jones was still alive and still a very big influence yeah. on the group. And... Uh, then I did one of their songs, and I, it wasn't until a few years ago that somebody told me that I have the... Uh, Distinction of... That's the word, thank you. <laughs> it's been a long day. <laughs> of having the first Jagger Richards uh, composition on the American charts, because I recorded uh, That Girl Belongs to Yesterday, which was one of their songs. Yeah, but didn't you return the favor? You and Phil did some stuff for them, too, did you not? Well, that piano was, on their album cuts. Yeah, well, that was just one of those freaky days that... Uh, it was nice that things like that could happen at that time where people could just, you could just drop in and do things. Uh, I was coming home from Paris, and I stopped in London for one day. And Andrew called and he said that uh, they had had their first hit record, which was a Beatles song, I Wanna Be Your Man. And on, on this day, they all hated each other. He said he, he had them back in the studio, and the record company was calling for that next single, but they didn't even wanna talk to each other. And I had five bottles of duty-free cognac that you were allowed to bring back at the time. And myself and the guy traveling with me, we said, okay, here goes. So we took a bottle of cognac, went to the studio, and we told him that it was my birthday and that it was a custom, that everybody has a glass of cognac for my birthday. And Phil happened to be, he drove by in a big black Rolls, and he came booming in out of nowhere. And they loosened up a little bit, uh, ended up with Not Fade Away off the session. Right. And they didn't even have any material for a B-side. They only had like the one song they were working on. So uh, Andrew put together like just some blues chords and uh, he gave us credit on the LP and I love it because I think he gives uh, Phil credit for playing maracas and he actually played an empty cognac bottle with a half dollar. That was his <laughs> Was that little by little on the other side? Right, yeah. that was his percussion instrument. Yeah. Then you did some goodies with uh, George Jones. Um, it's Country Time again and another album which name escapes me. But, but George must have been fun to work with. You went on the Grand Ole Opry then, I remember that. George was, is a very unique guy. I mean, he, you mentioned the word legend. This guy is and has been for a long time. Uh, and the thing that's, that really scared me, and we laughed about it later on, but it scared him as well. He'd never recorded with anybody who was in a pop field whatsoever. It's true. And when I heard the phrasing that he has, which so many people have emulated, emulated you know, since then, oh, yeah. I thought, how do I, what am I gonna do with this guy? How am I gonna sing with him? And luckily, I had about four years of training of doing phonetic uh, recording in Italian, Spanish, and German. I was gonna ask you that as another question. Well, I could pick up on sounds though. So the minute I could hear the way George was doing his end of it, it, it came very, very easy because it's so broad the way he sings and it's, uh, it's so ex expressive. And the thing that we were afraid of as well is are we gonna match up? And it was perfect with his low bassy sounds and my high pitch sounds. It, uh, we got in the studio and I remember the band stopped playing the first number. 
because we, we thought we did something wrong. But it was just matching so well that they just had to stop, take a breather, and start all over again. They, what a thrill, though. What, yeah. a, what a great thing. must have been interesting to be on the Grand Ole Opry because it's an institution musically in the world, in, in America. Well, it was nice being on the old one. That was yeah. the Rhyme Old Auditorium yeah. at the time. And uh, I did it quite a few times. One of them was a, a live uh, Jimmy Dean show from there and spent a lot of time recording there. I mean, it was a whole different world because oh, sure. I, I was so used to recording in New York and L.A. where as the, the second hand goes, you hit your three hours, everybody's on double time, and that's it, like everybody puts down the instrument, you know. And when you're in Nashville, it was like, yeah, man, you, you will need another take, yeah. Just a little glass up on the piano. I've been there to watch some of those yeah, studio sessions. much, yeah. much easier. You've recorded in Italian, in Spanish. At one time in history, without getting into all the details, uh, I think you had uh, the country album on the charts, uh, Italian hits. Uh, I mean, you were on the charts all over the world, sometimes in different languages. I mean, that must have been an incredible time for you, personally. It was incredible, incredibly successful, but I didn't realize what a, a difficulty that makes for you uh, when you do that, because you, you think of the uh, challenge of going after having success in one of the, any one of those fields, and it's terrific. But once you do have it, like take, for instance, uh, Italy, which became very, very, very big for me. Once you have success in Italian, in the Italian language, that meant one more whole new set of songs that I had to go after right. for the next LP and for the next single. When I went to the country field, okay, now you've got to have all new, it's got to be country and western stuff, it's got to fit the field that you're going into. So it just made it like a 12-month year was, was impossible. It was really like an 18-month year that was needed. To conclude all this, Gene, one of the things that's fascinated me about, uh, about your career, and I'm a big fan of Gene Pitney, you know Thank that. You. And I remember we did a show here in Vancouver with the Chiffons and a whole bunch of people back in 63 or 64. But at a certain period in your career, you did something that I really admire. I think you've, you know what I'm talking about. You gave up the road and all of that to, to be with your wife and raise your kids. And do you regret that? No, oh, it was the biggest benefit thing I ever did for myself. And I didn't realize it at the time. It was right in the early 70s and I was traveling like 11 months out of the year. My oldest two boys were one and two, two and three, whatever at the time. And it was like a, a guilt situation where I just said uh, it's, it's wrong and uh, I see too many what I call absentee daddies all yeah. the time and I vowed to try to go cut back to six months out of the year not knowing that by well by doing that first of all I knew I was going to lose the recording side right because I used to spend three or four months just looking for material and I also had to pick and choose where I was going to go and as a result kind of like lost my own backyard for the market in, in North America but I didn't know that uh, anybody in any job, that if you keep pursuing something, if you work at it as hard as I do when I go into something, if you keep at it all the time, it erodes. You're working just as hard, but your 100% cuts down to 90%, and you think your output's the same, and you're doing things just as good. Well, my benefit from the whole thing was that when I got away from it and forced myself to take a couple months off, and then I went back out and did another a live show, oh, the enthusiasm and, and the you were feeling. fresh again. Oh yeah, for being out there. I mean, that's the way you got to do it. Well, how old are Chris, David, and Todd now? David is the little guy. He's only yeah. eight. But uh, Todd is now 19. Okay. Chris is 18. They're both in college, and uh, everything is much more settled. I spend more time on the road now than I did before. All right. uh, it's a whole different way of life. But I didn't realize that by doing that, that's the beauty of it. That uh, the benefit. Was, was coming my way as well. But isn't that part of every human being's legacy? The only things we all leave behind is our family. I think it was a very admirable thing. I, and I bet you're satisfied within yourself. Oh yeah, absolutely. It all turned out great. The kids are terrific. In all our careers, we have friends and some of them go on and become famous. It's like going back to a high school grad. Some made it, some didn't. 
uh, to a grad reunion. Phil Spector, uh, you know, as an icon of American music, and you were, your name shows up all the time with him. Was he a friend? How did you come in contact with Phil? Again, one of those things with me that uh, we just ran into each other. I know that I had dinner with him the night that he came to New York uh, from L.A., and he was much more sophisticated than I. Uh, he'd already had, I think, the teddy bear situation yeah. behind him. To know him is to love him. Yeah. Right. And I was a very green kid from uh, up in Rockville, Connecticut. And we went to the House of Chan on 7th Avenue. I remember having a, a Chinese meal with him. The thing that always fascinated me, and fascinated me about him was he had the, the picture of what he wanted to do in his head, but he wasn't educated as a musician, thoroughly. But there was a guy that we all used uh, in sessions who was brilliant on piano. His name was Paul Griffin. Mm -hmm. Phil immediately tied up with Paul, and Paul was the guy that put Phil's ideas down to paper. And he would have, uh, I would see them on the floor, laying on the floor, like scrolling these things, saying, no man, what I want is this, and I want to do this with the fiddles and everything. And the score was being put out, you know, and... Uh, that's where they created the wall of sound, I guess, what, as it was called. Well, I heard a great story just recently, and I can just picture it happen, because I, I mentioned the uh, musicians and the union, like in New York, and how yes. thoroughly tough that it was and everything. Very formal. And I heard uh, something that probably didn't happen, but I, I wish it did. And it was that Phil had booked a full orchestra for one of his dates, and somebody in his office had also booked a full orchestra for the same date. And being 802 in New York, that when they all showed up, they said, man, we're here, we're all gonna get paid. So Phil, being as stubborn as he was, he said, fine, but you're also gonna play. <laughs> and he threw both orchestras together. I can just picture it. You know, that's why it was double drummers and everything else. And uh, What's the headline of this? AF of M takes on Phil Spector, and Phil Spector takes on AF of M. <laughs> well, I think he won the battle, because if, if that was some something to do with the idea of that real, probably, the, the studios, the way they were at that time, if you put that many people in there, everything bounced all over the place. You completely lost separation. And that may have been the sound when he heard it said, hey, that's not a bad idea. Let's go that way. Interesting thing about Spectre, a few moments ago, you mentioned uh, in passing that uh, there's a right sound and the right people at the right time. And certainly as stereo became more and more the thing, because prior to that in the 50s and early 60s it wasn't, and as uh, more albums opened up, the Spectre sound filled up the stereo grooves, didn't it? I mean, it was... Oh, absolutely. And he even went as far as uh, when he had the groups out on the road, he would duplicate it. I remember, I've never seen anybody bring two drummers on for like the Ronettes. No. Just one to do the fills and one to just play the straight ahead stuff, you know. So he knew what he was doing. He also, when he listened to songs in the publisher's office, I've always said that there were people uh, who would take, like let's say there's A, B, and C music. C music being the, the worst of the bunch, B music being okay, and the A stuff, you know that it's a winner. Uh, some guys would come in and they would listen to a whole presentation of a demo not really know what they were looking for and say, well, let me take it and I'll listen to it again. Uh, there were people, the majority of them were like in the middle. They had an idea of what they were looking for. They would take the B stuff. Phil would come in and listen to eight bars of something and say, no, next, no, next. He knew exactly what he was looking for. And the minute he heard it, because I remember when he heard he's a rebel, he grabbed it and ran. He stuck that under his arm and was going out the door. That was a so a lot of this genius comes from having that inner ear and that uh, ex knowing when something's a winner right away. I think so. Like I think a good that coach in sports, right? Absolutely. Looking at the right moves, knowing that the the guy can connect with somebody downfield. You know, the same kind of a situation, and, and he definitely definitely that's talent. had it. Yeah. Gene Pitney, you're an American original. I really want to thank you for taking time to talk with us, and good luck with the the next phase of your career, Gene. Thank, thank you. Thank you, Red. Thank, thank you. you.